Johnny and I were sitting uh, sitting by his pool, and we were kind of half laughing, half crying, saying, you know, we're, we're pretty much almost out of money. No one uh, believes that this is ever going to work. At the time, we were just really seeing in the fitness industry, uh, STEP was really so dominant as a group exercise program. There really wasn't uh, a lot of acceptance of what we were doing. And, and so we really almost pulled the plug back you know, probably 92, 93. And I'd have to say it was really, you know, probably towards 94 when we were seeing the success that Crunch was having. Our classes were doing pretty well here in Los Angeles. And, you know, that's when the interest started to build. So it was really that time frame between 94 and 95 that it really started to take off both domestically and internationally. This is Amy, the Senior Group Fitness Instructor at the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. Are you looking for a spark of inspiration to bring to your next class? Find us at IndoorCycleInstructor.com. Hi, and welcome to a pretty special episode of the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. Uh, You know, there's a dominant brand in our industry that really started it all spinning, and there are 20 years since they got started, actually a little over 20 years. And it's remarkable that, you know, they had such an incredible impact on our lives as indoor cycling or spinning instructors or just in fitness in general. And I'm very pleased to have John Bodwin, who's the CEO and one of the founding partners of Mad Dog Athletics on. So welcome, John. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. What was it like way back when, when you and Johnny G were just first conceptualizing this whole thing that is now spinning? Both of us were really just avid cyclists. And, uh, you know, so I think back then it was so driven by just a passion for cycling and probably a lot of uh, uh, just being naive about what it would take to actually put something like this on the map. And, you know, I think it was really just the determination, that love of cycling that, uh, you know, just kept us going. But, you know, early on, it was really about, you know, finding a better way to train as a cyclist. And uh, I had actually never had a gym membership. In fact, to this day, I've never had a gym membership. So, you know, I can't say that my knowledge of the fitness industry was really, uh, at that point, even uh, remotely developed. So, uh, really, it was, you know, early on, it was really this, this passion for cycling and building a better way to train indoors. But you're living in California. Well, see, that was the flaw in the business plan, because neither of us realized that actually you can ride 300, you know, probably 50 days a year. So, uh, you know, it probably wasn't as well thought out had we been in New York or someplace back east where it snows half the year. Right. Yeah. I I mean, it makes perfect sense that somebody creative think, hey, it's freezing outside. Let's ride inside, which was still something that people have done for, you know, well before you and Johnny G got together. I mean, there's videos of, you know, professional cyclists back in the when they started making film of people on rollers and whatnot. But what was the real motivation there? What, 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 What problem were you guys trying to solve? Well, you know, I think initially it was, um, you know, we, I I was actually going to graduate school at the time and working full time as a CPA. So 
my the amount of time I had to train was pretty limited. And at, at that point, Johnny was actually training for the race across America. So he uh, his wife was uh, expecting a baby and. Uh, it was really one of those things where just out of necessity, we were trying to find a better way to just, you know, really perfect how you train indoors. So, uh, the first spinner bikes, if you ever seen some of the, the images on our website that, you know, put a bike or and, and superimpose a bike over the spinner, it's pretty much the identical geometry. So a lot of it was born out of, uh, you know, really trying to emulate cycling. And part of it was necessity. You know, when you really only have uh, late night, you know, hours to train, you can't really go out on the road um, with the amount of riding that Johnny was having to do to train for Race Across America. It really uh, was just trying to find a better mousetrap. Um, and then Johnny at the time, you know, he was working as a personal trainer. So uh, it was also a way for Johnny to train his clients, and a lot of those weren't cyclists, and, and that's really how it was born into a class format, was really out of that, uh, you know, training individuals and, uh, you know, and seeing the results that they got from, from actually doing cycling training, uh, many of which just didn't realize that, uh, you know, they could actually be cyclists, and and that was really how the whole thing was born, and uh, Johnny, uh, we opened a little studio and that was really how it took off. It, we looked around one day and noticed that half the people in class weren't cyclists. They were just people enjoying the ride. Where are we catching you today, John? Uh, I'm actually at the office. We have our office dogs. If you hear barking in the background, that's uh, <laughs> Kobe, our lab, that's uh, probably uh, barking at the mailman. Got it. Okay. All right. So er, when did the, the group setting um, really take hold? Or the or the the idea that this is going to be a group form of exercise. Well, Johnny Johnny had played around uh, with the, the idea um, back you know in the early like ninety uh, gosh actually probably eighty nine, and it was really again he was working as a trainer and it was really um, you know for him not only doing his own training but then training his clients so he would ride one on one with them on uh, you know various forms of of uh, you know, trainers. And so I'd have to say we, when we first built the, the first spinner bikes, um, we went into a little studio. We actually uh, leased some space, uh, a little studio in Hollywood. And that was really when we, we started to see probably the, the broader potential of spinning, um, where, you know, probably 90% of the class was just people that wanted to come in and get fit and have a great workout. So it was really, uh, you know, probably, you know, right around 93 when we opened the first spinning studio with the current model spinner bike. And an instructor rather than a coach, which was more typical, you know, for a group that was training on rollers or something. Yeah, well, Johnny, uh, at the time, again, he was training for the Race Across America. So what was great is uh, he actually was teaching pretty much every class there. So if you can imagine, you know, for all, of, all the instructors out there, Johnny would teach uh, 30 classes a week. So if you think about just the number of hours on a bike. Um, but that was a lot of Johnny. You know, that was Johnny training for the Race Across America and certainly, you know, kind of emulating what he would experience out on the road uh, during RAM. So uh, for Johnny, that was really pretty commonplace. And you know, for those of you that had the uh, opportunity to ride with Johnny, uh, you know, you'd see him show up at a trade show and hop on the bike and he'd sit there for eight hours straight uh, just pedaling away. 
he was a remarkable athlete and, and really probably one of the only people I've ever met that could really ride at that intensity level for as long as he did. Is it, was it right to say that without Johnny G, there really would never have been this fantastic brand? Johnny was instrumental. I mean, he, he was really the, you know, the Pied Piper, the guy that, uh, you know, was, was, you know, really capable of, of, you know, for those of you, again, that have ridden with Johnny, you know, he could ride with 500 people in a room and, and everybody in there would feel like they were riding right next, next to Johnny, you know, and, and he really Mm -hmm. had an incredible way of motivating people. So I think it was really, particularly early on, um, Johnny, that was so instrumental in, in just getting people excited about what we were doing. You had your first studio, and what happened next? Well, we, uh, we, we were actually in 93, we were actually building the bikes ourselves. And uh, we had gotten to the point where we uh, had really kind of hit the radar screen of Crunch. And uh, at the time, a gentleman that owned Crunch, Doug Levine, had come out to Los Angeles and he had seen a spinning class and actually taken one and said, ah, this is fantastic. I've got to bring it back. And uh, so really crunch was probably the first mainstream opportunity that we had to go into a gym, um, you know, in a major area. And so we went into the first crunch location in uh, downtown in uh, 1993. And it was really Doug who was a master of PR that I'd have to say did more to help us get on the map. Uh, than anyone. And so it was really probably, um, I think, 1994 when we, unbeknownst to us, Doug had been doing a bunch of PR and spinning was named the hot exercise in Rolling Stone magazine. And a lot of that had to do, again, with, with Doug. And so from there, we, we really started to get a lot of calls about you know spinning and how they could get it at their clubs or studios. And that was a point at which we said, you know, we're just not we're not manufacturers. We didn't really have a manufacturing facility. We were having frames made at one place and pulling the parts together, building the bikes uh, in our garage. So we, we weren't really a manufacturing company, although we were making bikes. And and so it was 1994 that we actually joined with Schwinn and licensed the manufacturing and distribution to Schwinn, uh, which was really, I think, the starting point, you know, of, of really getting it out there into, you know, not just tens of clubs, but thousands of clubs. Right. And are you actively doing the trade show circuits at this point? Yeah, I, I still, you know, for 20 years, I, I've come to work every day and we do all the trade shows. We uh, not only do our own shows, uh, we actually started doing our own shows. We, we got a little frustrated. We would show up at certain shows and they would relegate us to a room that only held 50 bikes. And we look out the door and there was 200 people that wanted to ride. And so that was really how we started in the convention business or the show business ourselves with uh, the World Spinning and Sports Conference. Um, we have the spinning experience in the Netherlands, uh, uh, International Masters Day in Italy. So we do a lot of uh, big events on our own, but yeah, we still show up at pretty much all the major shows worldwide. Was there ever a time when uh, early where you guys dreamed that it would get this big? You know, there was a time, uh, you know, really the opposite, that Johnny and I were sitting uh, sitting by his pool and we were kind of half laughing, half crying, saying, you know, we're, we're pretty much almost out of money. No one uh, believes that this is ever going to work. At the time, we were just really seeing in the fitness industry 
uh, step was really so dominant as a group exercise program, there really wasn't uh, a lot of acceptance of what we were doing. And, and so we really almost pulled the plug back, you know, probably 92, 93. And I'd have to say it was really, you know, probably towards 94 when we were seeing the success that Crunch was having. Our classes were doing pretty well here in Los Angeles. And, you know, that's when the interest started to build. So it was really that time frame between 94 and 95 that it really started to take off both domestically and internationally. You know, you needed the innovator to, to help propel you, the innovator customer. Yeah, exactly. Walking down that path, you know, once you started see going, was, did you ever have, you know, this fantasy that it's going to be huge or did, did you just kind of go along with the, on the ride and see where it was going to go? You know, we, we just went, I haven't say we went along for the ride. You know, both Johnny and I loved what we were doing at the time. Um, I had, at that point, quit my job as a CPA and, and started to run the company full time. For us, it was really just such an incredible thing to go to have an opportunity to go to Rimini in Italy and, and do a ride there where we'd have 100 bikes and, and just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people trying to program. And it was really a, a pretty amazing time because it was really something that no one had seen before. We'd go to countries and uh, different trade shows where people would, you know, look at the bike and kind of, you know, look at you and go, what the heck are you doing? But I think it was really like anything, you know, so many people get involved with spinning because of a friend or, you know, a lot of times it's the results that they see their friends get from, you know, whether it be improving their athletic performance or losing weight. And so it was really one of those things where, you know, demonstrating what we were doing was key because, you know, really showing a picture, a two dimensional picture of a stationary bike or somebody riding with it didn't look very exciting. But, you know, when you hopped on that bike in a group setting with music and an instructor, it really just changed the experience. And so we realized that um, that was pretty much how we had to try to go out there and grow the program was just through doing uh, tons of shows, demonstrations, events, um, really every opportunity we had to get butts on, on the bike uh, was really how we, we got things going. And the decision to get Schwinn as far as a distribution partner, I, I, I got to imagine that was helpful. Yeah, Schwinn, uh, well, you know, it's a funny story. We, we were actually buying the flywheels from Schwinn. So that was the one component part. We, we would buy uh, the cranks from Seattle Bike Supply and chains and so forth. But the only flywheel that we could find that was a, a literally a part you could order was the Schwinn flywheel off of the Airdyne, or not the Airdyne, the uh, DX900. So we had placed an order for about 125 flywheels. And I guess Schwinn hadn't ever sold a flywheel as a replacement part for one of those bikes. So they were kind of curious as to why somebody would suddenly order 125 of these. And that was when we had hit kind of their radar screen where they said, well, okay, we, we've heard of this thing. Uh, and they had actually flown somebody out and we, we had met with them. And at the time they were, I think, intrigued by what we were doing, but again, not convinced that it could ever achieve any commercial success because we didn't want Schwinn to qu cut us off from our flywheel supply. They were really the last company that we spoke with. Uh, so we actually uh, had gone to Life Fitness. We had gone to a lot of the big uh, equipment companies who uh, flatly turned us down. I, I had a, uh, at one point, I wish I, I could find it, but a, uh, 
a file of all the rejection letters where we'd send him a proposal <laughs> of what we were trying to do. And of course, you know, at the time, Johnny had this long, crazy hair. And anybody that met him thought, you know, he was a, a crazy South African. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, so it was really a, it was an interesting time because it, it really there weren't a lot of companies that had faith in what we were doing or believed that it could ever be what it is today. So uh, Schwinn at the time, you know, took a chance and uh, we licensed the manufacturing to them in 94. And from there, you know, that gave us the ability to really expand quickly and get into all these other markets. Because you did expand very quickly within the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. We, we uh, are a distributor in Europe. Scott, actually, Schwinn was owned by the Scott Sports Group or a, a group of investors. And so Scott was our distributor in Europe, and they were a strong brand uh, on that continent. And so, you know, you can imagine, you know, a couple guys that uh, you know started in our garage in Santa Monica, and suddenly we're getting calls to you know fly to Germany and fly to the Netherlands and Italy and all these other places to uh, to launch the program. Um, we were at the time kind of simultaneously writing the manual. And uh, even to this day, you know, it's funny, people say, well, how come your certification, the initial uh, uh, orientation is one day in the United States and two days in Europe? And what it was, we only had English manuals. So when we went over to do a training in Switzerland and everybody spoke German, we, it took us two days because we had to translate everything. You know, we had our U.S. instructors going over. Everything had to be translated. So it took twice as long. And so to this day, we still do two-day orientations and certifications in Europe versus one day here. Got it. But for no other reason is because you needed to at some point and you just want to be consistent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> little tri- a little trivia. Yeah. It, it uh, you know, I think with the growth, you know, that was our goal. You know, Johnny was always very uh, adamant that that people teach the program properly. And we both were, you know, because we, we felt that the best way to grow the program was to keep it consistent, to keep the quality. And and that's really what we set out to do. So again, early on, we busted our butts and just were on planes almost every week, he or I, uh, launching the program in South Africa or Germany or Netherlands or other, other markets around the world. When did you start bringing on additional help as far as the master instructors? I think our first camp was actually uh, 95. Uh, we, we had uh, a group of instructors here. And the challenge was, you know, at the time, Johnny was very uh, uh, concerned about, you know, kind of letting, letting the program out there to, to any individual that really hadn't trained for, for a long time. And, and you can imagine the challenge back then when you're launching a new program into a market and no one's ever seen it. So you don't even have people that you can recruit from. It, it really is a right. matter of saying, okay, you need to do spinning for you know six months to a year, get to the point where you actually understand and know how to teach a class, and then we can work on you know bringing you into the ranks of a master instructor. So it was pretty challenging. Um, the recruiting process was pretty tough. Um, we recruited actually back then a lot of cyclists, uh, a lot of uh, you know people that that really not only were great fitness educators, but, but, you know, understood cycling. So I have to say the early part was, was pretty tough because, you know, all these markets we went into, we were just struggling to find the right candidates to join our MI team. But, uh, you know, that all took place probably, uh, the bulk of it between 95 and 98. Wow. What was the biggest challenge during all this time? 
Was there something that kept coming up as creating difficulty, caused you sleepless nights, anything like that? Well, you know, I think the, the biggest challenge for us was, um, you know, I, I think that uh, we when we first did the deal with Schwinn, we, uh, you know, didn't really know better than to just say, OK, well, you know, they're a big bike company. They have distribution all over the world. We'll go ahead and, and um, um, license spinning in its entirety to Schwinn for distribution around the world. And, and so as it turned out. Back then, Schwinn was really distributed through a, a ragtag group of about 2,800 dealers around the country. And so you can imagine if you were Bally, Total, Total Fitness, or one of these bigger club chains, that in order to get bikes to all your location, you'd have to call Bob Schwinn in, you know, in Los Angeles and Steve Schwinn in you know, Ohio. Got it. <laughs> and it, it was really uh, you know, kind of difficult for um, you know, there to be continuity. And of course, these dealers... You know, they just want to sell bikes. They didn't understand what training was. So it was really, you know, I think getting Schwinn to really buy into, you know, the fact that that to make spinning successful, it wasn't just about a bike. It was about the training, making sure people were doing the program properly. So that that was probably the biggest challenge. And then I, I think secondly, um, in '98, uh, Schwinn was sold to an investor group, and it was really more of a play on the bike division, but. Uh, they were uh, sold to a company called Questor, and Questor had in mind they were going to build the world's biggest bicycle company. And in the process, they made a lot of acquisitions and a lot of uh, moves that ended up taking the company into bankruptcy in 2001. So that period of time was probably the most difficult for us because we were really dealing with uh, you know, a private equity firm that, that could really care less about what we were doing. They were really just there to you know, get as much as they could out of selling bikes and really weren't, I think, very vested in doing the right thing you know, with respect to the instructors, the clubs, and, and the program side of it. So I'd have to say that was probably the most difficult you know, part of our business was just getting you know, out of the Schwinn kind of wreckage that, that ensued through 2001 when they uh, went into bankruptcy. So there was a period of time where you didn't know if you were going to be able to continue as a business? Oh, sure. Yeah. When Schwinn, uh, Schwinn was, the, the wheels were coming off of Schwinn in about 2000. And we started to hear rumblings of uh, clubs that couldn't get bikes, um, couldn't get spare parts. Um, finally, we, we had received a call from the manufacturer in Taiwan who uh, had, had told us that, hey, Schwinn was behind something like two to three million on payments and they were cutting them off. And they wanted to know if we wanted to take over the distribution. And so that was really the first point that we were alerted that there were real issues because Schwinn, uh, they knew that they were taking the company into bankruptcy, but they were really trying to hide that fact from all their vendors and suppliers and everybody else, um, just simply to try to position it to pull as much as they could and then take it into bankruptcy. And so that was the point at which we uh, pulled the plug on Schwinn. And the difficult part, we ended up in litigation with them for over a year, uh, just based on some of the things that they had done uh, in terms of stealing customer lists and other you know, IP that we owned. So it was really a, a challenging time for us and, and uh, you know, one that, that was probably, like I said, the most difficult 
you know, both personally and from a business standpoint that I've ever experienced in my entire career. Because you're kind of tied to the hip with them, aren't you, at that point? Yeah, at that point, I mean, the way the agreement was written, it was very difficult for us to actually terminate the agreement. Um, and so we were discovering that they, uh, you know, they were underreporting things like royalties. They um, uh, were just really flat out the management team lying to us about what was going on. And so, yeah, we were joined at the hip. And even when we terminated the agreement based on what we knew, they essentially sued us and said, hey, you, you know, you can't, it's wrongful termination. You didn't really terminate the agreement. And, you know, we're, we're really fighting like heck to, to keep us in this relationship, which at the time, you know, they, they were just becoming this, you know, this wreckage of a company. And so that was really, uh, you know, again, for us, uh, you know, a time that it was really touch and go. We were, we were spending probably close to a hundred thousand a month on attorney's fees and, Ouch. Uh, you know, I had mortgaged, uh, taken out a second of my house to, you know, pay for attorney's fees. So it was pretty touch and go as to whether we'd actually make it. Got it. But obviously you did. What solved that issue and then brought you to Star Trek? It was funny. We, uh, at the time, we uh, we were working, uh, you know, obviously with Schwinn on an exclusive basis. So we couldn't even produce bikes. And I got a call one day from a, a guy uh, named Larry Dakoff, who was the buyer at Bally's. And he said, hey, John, you know, we've we've worked with you for a long time. He said, you know, I, I trust you. And he said, you know, I hear all these things going on with Schwinn. He said, you know, I, I need bikes. I've got clubs opening up. And he said, I can't get Schwinn's, you know, any any ideas what I should do? And I said, well, you know, Larry, it, it's not looking good. And um, at this point. You know, I, if I were to recommend a bike, I said I, I'd have to say you should buy the Star Trek. It, it's the best bike. You know, if you can't get our bike, it's the best bike you know out there. And funny enough, I, I get a call a few weeks later from um, Andy Richters, who at the time was the VP of Sales for Star Trek, and he said, "Hey, you know, I just want to thank you." He said, "You know, it's kind of rare that you would have uh, one of your biggest competitors refer a sale." particularly to someone like Bally's. And I said, well, you know, I, I said, you know, we've had a long relationship and, um, you know, I consider Larry a friend and I, I just uh, would hate to see him do the wrong thing or buy the wrong bike. And I said, you know, I, I truly feel like you guys are trying to do the right thing. And, and I said, you know, if we can't supply it, you know, it should probably go to you guys. And, and so that was really what opened up the dialogue with Star Trek. And it was really uh, towards the end of 2001 that we ended up in a Denny's with Jim Duty, the owner of Star Trek, uh, and a handshake deal saying, you know, let's move forward together. You had a, or I should say you, Schwinn had a bunch of knockoff competitors by 2000, 2001, correct? Yeah, yeah. We had quite a few competitors that, you know, were, were building bikes. Reebok was one of our first competitors. Um, they were building a bike, Kaiser, uh, a couple others. Okay, so you got things back on track with Star Trek. Was it just, you know, everything wonderful from that point forward or were there other challenges? You know, the, the thing I loved about uh, working with Star Trek, you know, I think early on was that they were, you know, they, Jim Duty, it was really a family that owned, owned the business. And Jim was very hands-on. And I think one of the few individuals that I've ever met in the industry that just was so vested in doing the right thing. And, and he... Uh, was really concerned about you know getting the right quality and uh, tremendous honesty and integrity and 
that was probably my favorite time because, you know, we would fly, I'd fly over to the factory and we'd spend a week, you know, tinkering with, uh, the bike and, and really, um, you know, for the first time we had a company that, that was really as vested in doing the right thing, not only with respect to the bike, but also training. And, and so early on, um, you know, I think they were pretty surprised what we brought to the table in terms of distribution. Um, you know, because Schwinn had gone through this bankruptcy, Star Trek was primarily a domestic company. And so what we were able to do is take a lot of those distributors that we had worked with uh, throughout the world, um, Europe, Asia, uh, Latin America, and we actually brought those on as Star Trek distributors. So that was really the, the point at which Star Trek began uh, distributing uh, more internationally. And, and so it really helped get Star Trek on the map uh, in all these other markets. And for us, um, you know, again, we had a, a great company that we really enjoyed working with that um, was, was helping us on the bike side. Wow. So you really were reciprocal and and helping each other. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a really great, you know, great relationship. Awesome. I'd like to move forward to, to a little bit more toward the now where we're at because because you were just a freight train throughout the 2000s. And I'm, I'm very curious as to what your, um, how do I describe it? You know, this all these new boutique studios that are opening. Because very early on, there were a number of small boutique studios. And then it's like they faded away and it was all big box. And now we're back to the small boutiques. You know, what is your guys' impression of that? Um, yeah, I'm having a hard time formulating into a question, but um, I'm just interested in your response. It's interesting. A lot of people don't realize that we actually had our own studio back in 95 through 97 um, and here in Culver City, California. And uh, at the time, we we did it really more as a headquarters. So we, we actually called it Johnny G's headquarters. Johnny trained there. Uh, we used it as a, a center to not only train master instructors, but to really you know, work on the program. And we felt that by having the studio, it really gave us that firsthand uh, experience of what it, what it meant to actually run classes at a facility. And so we, we were pretty much, um, again, exposed to the small studio space, you know, and, and probably should have stayed in, in, the, in the market. Uh, we, we ended up closing the studio, just finally our lease expired. And we just thought, you know what, it's a a distraction from our core business. So we decided to, you know, uh, not renew the lease, but it's really interesting. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big supporter of, of the studio market and as well as the clubs. And I think the studios really embody what I've always believed about indoor cycling, which is you can't just throw somebody on the bike and, you know, in a room that's, you know, got terrible ventilation, a, a crummy stereo system, no real experience and then throw somebody on a bike and, uh, you know, play mediocre music and, you know, expect to get a great result. Amen to that. And, and so, you know, I think that's one, one of the things that the studios have really done. And I, and I don't think it's limited to indoor cycling. I think, you know, it's the same thing for yoga, Pilates, indoor cycling, um, CrossFit, Typically, the individuals or the groups that, that run these facilities um, are, are really vested in creating a great experience for the people that walk through the door. And it's 
it's understandable when you look at some of the bigger club chains that, you know, it, it's challenging uh, to really create that consistency because, uh, you know, not only turnover, but, you know, how do you train people and how do you create that consistency across, uh, you know, not only tens of, of locations, but, you know, in, in some cases, hundreds of locations. And so, you know, I think the studios have really done a great job. And, and again, I'm not speaking necessarily towards indoor cycling, but I, I think they've done a great job of really elevating the experience, whether it be yoga, Pilates, indoor cycling, CrossFit, that people may not have been getting in, in some, some of their clubs. And, you know, and if you think about the evolution of the club market, back when I first um, got into the business, most of the clubs out there were, you know, simply rooms full of equipment. And what gave us the ability to really get spinning in pretty broadly across uh, uh, the U.S. was the fact that another big trend before then was racquetball. Exactly. And so there was a <laughs> right. ton of clubs that had racquetball courts. And we had come up with a package and said, hey, you can fit 21 bikes and uh, in a racquetball court. And so you don't even need to you know, take that unused racquetball court and turn it into a spinning studio. And so... Early on, uh, you know, that was probably the, the you know, the, the greatest uh, driver of getting spinning into a lot of clubs was the fact that they had unused space. But, you know, I think as, as the program evolved and more competitors came into the market and certainly more competitors that are really concerned about simply selling bikes, um, you know, we're a full service company. You know, we're one of the few companies that, um, you know, if you buy bikes from us, you can call us. Uh, you know, anytime between, you know, seven in the morning and six at night, and you'll get a live person on the phone that, that can help you out, whether it be with training questions or uh, product questions. And so, you know, as a full service company, we, we really believe in creating that experience. And we're really vested in making sure that, that, you know, our, our instructors are well trained and that they keep focusing on the fact that it, it's not just about throwing bikes in a room. It's about, you know, creating a great experience for that person that walks through the door. And, you know, so, you know, I think to when you look at the studios, I think that's what a lot of the studios are doing. I think a lot of the clubs now are realizing that they need to really up their game. So if the studios ultimately help that happen in the club market, great. Yeah, I think it'll be a great thing for the entire industry. What about SoulCycle and the effect that they've been having? You know, how do you view them? You know, SoulCycle has really uh, institutionalized, um, you know, kind of this this studio concept where you know they're they're taking uh, markets and, and bigger markets, particularly New York, LA. Um, you know, obviously a much higher price point. So you know, a lot of places, you know, we're in over thirty thousand clubs around the world. In a lot of places, you know, you, you would never be able to charge 35 bucks a class. You wouldn't be able to charge 25 or, or in some places even 15. That's a monthly membership. Yeah, a lot of exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, so I think SoulCycle um, does a great job, have, have done a great job of PR, have done a great job of, of creating buzz around uh, their, their studios. Um, but, you know, I, I look at it and I think, you know, it's great that they've created awareness for indoor cycling. But, you know, when I look at the broader market, there are, uh, you know, tens of thousands of clubs and, and studios around the world that are really, uh, you know, doing the same thing. And so 
for me, I'm actually pretty excited because if it really gets more of these clubs to realize that that they need to really get properly trained instructors and, and get the right programs in there, if it helps them, you know, whether it be carrot or stick, you know, raise their game, uh, you know, I'm, I'm for it. I think they've done a great job of creating awareness. Okay. And are you seeing increased uh, business because of them, do you think? You know, I, I don't know if it's because of Soul Cycle. You know, our, our business, we've been fortunate. We've, we've pretty much grown every year uh, for 20 years. We've, we've never had an unprofitable year. So, you know, we keep doing what we do. And, you know, that that means a lot of times, you know, we're, we're clearly not going to, you know, win out with, you know, kind of some proprietary studios that want to do their own thing. But, you know, the flip side is there's a lot of studios out there that, that really don't have the resources to to really implement best practices across the board. And, and that's really what we're trying to do is for the clubs out there that don't have the ability to spend, you know, a few million dollars a year on instructor education and programs and content. You know, we're, we're spending that and then spreading it across, you know, tens of thousands of, of locations. And so in a lot of ways, we're really that support for those studios and clubs. And, and that's really what our goal is to continue being, is really uh, a source of, of kind of best practices in the indoor cycling uh, industry, both on equipment and program for, you know, some of the studios and clubs that, that probably otherwise wouldn't put those kind of resources into it. You know, recently we've watched this change in indoor cycling, what I termed indoor cycling 2.0, with the introduction of metrics, you know, primarily power. How are you seeing that influencing your business? We, early on, uh, we had started out with heart rate training. And uh, one of our first relationships was with Polar. And at the time, Polar had one heart rate monitor. Uh, it was called the Polar Beat. And it just simply did that. It just showed a heart rate and that was pretty much it. Right. And so we've been really vested in, in, you know, getting, getting people to look at the, the biometrics of what they're doing in a class. Um, you know, I think when you, when you see how, you know, the intensity of a lot of these classes that it is important that, that people understand that, you know, training isn't about going out and hammering every day. You know, that, that there is, you know, some um, credence to, you know, moderation and, and to recovery and to, you know, really, uh, you know, working on kind of a periodized uh, training schedule where you're not just out there doing race day every day. And, and so, you know, using whether it be power, heart rate, and I think power is obviously a, a big step in the right direction, but I think power is, is going to help, you know, really achieve you know, measurable results and, and get people to the point where they understand what they're doing, you know, how they're recovering. Um, the fact that if they don't recover, they're not going to perform as well the next time they hop on the bike. And, and so if we can start changing the industry in that regard, you know, my, my hope is that more and more people will see, you know, the results that, that come from really properly training. At some point you made the decision to diversify into different fitness modalities, what led you to that decision? Well, we had uh, built a uh, you know a pretty sizable infrastructure worldwide. Um, you know, we have now 120 some employees, uh, and what we really saw was an opportunity to look at different uh, 
programs and products and, and primarily, you know, things that really could fit well into the infrastructure that we created. Um, we, we understand because we, we started out really as a training company, you know, for the years that we were involved with Schwinn, that was all we did was training. And so we really understand the training business. And, you know, as our relationship evolved to Star Trek, we, we uh, you know, have now gotten more involved in the distribution of the product as well. But um, our infrastructure was very well suited to programs and products that, that really required, you know, content to really make them work. And so back in, uh, you know, 2008, I really saw this rise of the studios in in. You know, I live in Santa Monica. We have uh, within a one mile radius of my house, probably five yoga studios. And I saw what was happening with the yoga studios. And I thought, you know, this is really going to be a trend that's going to continue. And rather than going into, for instance, um, manufacturing equipment, treadmills, things like that, we really wanted to utilize our infrastructure. We were very well suited to servicing the studio market as well as the club market. But use that infrastructure to go out and and take other products and and put them into environments where, um, you know, very similar to spinning, we could actually add a lot of value through the training side. And so that's when we uh, made a decision to acquire Peak Pilates, and we felt that that was a great addition to our our kind of studio side, where you know there's a lot of Pilates studios out there, and you know we have a sales force. So while they're calling on on studios wherever, it, it really is an opportunity to not just go in and talk about spinning, but to talk about peak and some of the other things. So we, we've kept we've kept everything though pretty well siloed. So we you know we've always uh, hired new people to take on. For instance, Peak has its own team, so we don't really uh, you know we really don't take things away from spinning. We we really focus on keeping spinning spinning. But you know, where we can utilize our infrastructure to uh, go out there and, and expand our footprint, we do. You know, I'm fascinated by Yugi. And uh, that was one of my objectives when I was at WSSC to, 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 to meet with Sarah Sears and, and take one of her classes. And I see that as the perfect fit, you know, for another indoor cycling studio that wants to offer a low-cost strength component. What have you been seeing with that brand? Well, Yugi was a, it was an interesting um, situation. We, uh, tragically, the company had started and, and one of the founders uh, passed away uh, uh, and uh, died of cancer um, just shortly after being diagnosed. And it really created a lot of problems within their organization. And I had met Sarah and uh, really liked what she was doing and, and really liked the concept. You know, one of the things around here, we, we don't have a committee that decides on these things. We, we literally get all the employees back. We have our own studio here at the corporate offices and we put everybody through a class. And when all of us went through the, the UE class, this innocuous looking pink ball, it seems very it's evil but it's, <laughs> yeah. it seems, it's, it's <laughs> you hit the nail on the head we all thought okay you know how, how tough is this going to be and, and if you've ever uh, seen a, a lot of grown men cry it was really one of those experiences where you went wow this is really something that um, is really a great combination of strength and flexibility and I, I've always believed you know people have said well you know oh the problem with spinning is that it only you know, provides cardiovascular and it only works out your legs. And so I say, yeah, you're right. 
but it's a great cardiovascular exercise and it's great for your legs. And that's why you have other forms of exercise. Because if you're not doing strength training, you're not doing you know things to improve your flexibility, and you're not doing cardio, you know it's like a three-legged stool. You you know you need to you know you need to kind of keep all of them going. And uh, so we see UV fitting in nicely because it does provide again that strength and flexibility side, and, and I think is a nice complement to spinning. Awesome. Well, I'll be excited to see how that all goes because yes, I did feel like crying. But at the same time, I thought this was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a great class. And, and it is, you know, it's a pretty low cost uh, program to put in. We've had uh, a lot of success getting into, uh, you know, some of the larger club chains, particularly in Europe. Um, uh, so much so that we're actually waiting. Uh, the manufacturer was just slow in, you know, ramping up some of the production. So we're, uh, you know, just trying to get that that going. But, uh, you know, so far it's, it's doing, doing well. And Sarah's doing a great job of leading the program and, uh, we're excited to see where it, where it, uh, lands in the next year. Yeah. And my hope is that at some point I can get Sarah on to discuss it because I think it has a, a, a key component in that you're offering a certification that a, a, the spinning instructor could achieve rather than a lot of fitness modalities. You need a group fitness certification, which, you know, my, experiences not everyone that's that's teaching in recycling has so i see this is a great uh, a great add-on to your uh, list of certifications what haven't i asked you that you'd like to talk about <laughs> well you know it, it's interesting you know talking about some of the other programs you know one of the other things that uh, i'd encourage uh, everybody who hasn't tried pilates you know i i have to say that I, I've been a cyclist my whole life, so if I'm not, you know, literally riding a spinning bike, I'm out on the road, and I don't really cross train probably as much as I, I should. And and what was interesting when I first started uh, working with Peak, and and I actually met some of the master instructors, and you know, talked to them about cycling. They said, oh, you know, we see it all the time. Cyclists come in, and you know, there's this uh, opportunity in Pilates to really do things to open up your hips. And, and uh, I really fell in love with the reformer. And I, I think that's really so much of what drives us. It's not about, you know, going out there and saying, well, we just want to sell widgets because we're just not that kind of company. We really do try to focus on programs and products that are really complementary. And whether it's things like Yugi, um, I got exposed to body blade uh, funny enough, through a bike accident, I hurt my shoulder, and Body Blade was created by Bruce Timonson, who's a uh, physical therapist specializes in shoulders. And uh, so, Body Blade was really something that was born out of a bike accident, and and ultimately how uh, the relationship and how I came to know that product. So, so much of what we do is really you know tied into this this concept that you know fitness is more than just you know riding a bike. You know, there are other opportunities that all of us have to, uh, you know, stay healthy, stay flexible, um, work on our strength. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, instructors out there that, um, you know, teach indoor cycling and don't or perhaps haven't tried some of these other things. Um, you know, it's it's a great thing just to see what you like. You know, go out there and experience it. Come to some of the conferences because, uh, you know, there are some really fun programs and I think great ways to you know, as we all get older and, you know, I, I see more and more people out there when I ride that are in their 50s, 60s and 70s. And I think that's really what I see in a mindset with so many people is 
it, it really is about you know doing these things you know well into your 60s, 70s, and hopefully 80s. And the only way you're going to get there is to to you know maintain your cardiovascular health, uh, strength, and flexibility. So uh, some of these other things are really I think important as well, uh, just from overall health standpoint. Exactly. Well, my wife loves her Pilates. She's taught for years and. It's something I kind of stay away from. I don't know why. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the Yugi class. I felt ashamed at my lack of <laughs> whatever, trying to be able to keep up with Sarah. It was Anything else? No, I really I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, encourage everybody. We just went through a big rebranding at Spinning. So if you guys haven't uh, gone, in, gone through and seen our new website, uh, spinning.com, we've done a lot to... Uh, add content, not only uh, video content, but a lot of uh, uh, our archives of, of newsletters, training tips. It's a, a great resource for instructors. And uh, I encourage everybody to at least go out there and poke around and, and tell us what you think about our new site. Uh, but yeah, we're, uh, you know, we're excited, you know, with where the, the category is going. We've got some great new products. Uh, uh, you know, I think, you know, talking about power, we, we were one of the first companies to start working on power, one of the, the later companies to actually get it implemented. But, you know, take a look at the ION because it's a great product. It's self-generating uh, in terms of power. So you can leave the, the light on all through class in a dark room and, and still see the readout. So we've done some really great things on, on that product. And, and I think, uh, you know, for some of the struggles that Star Trek went through in 2010 and 11, uh, you know, with the, uh, changes there, you know, I, I feel like we're getting back to where, where we were previously. So, uh, you know, take, take a look at some of the new products. I think you'll, you'll be impressed. Fabulous. Well, John Bodwin, Mad Dog Athletics, I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. It was great, uh, great to be on your, your podcast and, uh, love to, love to come back. Like you said, I, I never get an opportunity to talk to instructors, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're an open book. So by all means, give us a call if, uh, there's anything else uh, we can answer for you. Well, thanks again, John. Yeah. Take care. 